0: Good morning. Uh, If you have a Bible or Bible app and want to turn to our passage for today, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as we continue our journey through this book. As you work your way through Scripture, uh, sometimes you run into things that are pretty easy to affirm. You know, you read uh, that God is love. It's like... Yes, yeah, that, that resonates, that, I, I love that truth. Um, or do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's like, yeah, that's right, that, you know, it's hard to do, but by golly, that's right. Or whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Yeah, that's a sweet truth, I affirm that. Then other times, as you're working with through Scripture, you uh, you find things that, ah, oh, that's that's hard to understand, uh, that's difficult, or that's just really out of sync with you know what I naturally think, what 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 my culture's at. Well, buckle up because <laughs> that's the kind of passage we have today, um, and. You know, one of the things that shouldn't surprise us is that we run into things in Scripture that are contrary to our natural way of thinking. And you think about it, the whole point of Jesus coming was to uh, connect us to God because we were not in that condition naturally. Our thinking is often out of sync with His desires and His will. So uh, I want to encourage you to listen patiently, carefully, and really be praying that God's Spirit would speak to you and um, help you grab hold of what he would have for you today. So uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I'm going to be reading from the New International Version. There is a sheet in your folder if you want to follow along with that. Uh, It'll also be on the screen. Let's pray before we dive in. Father, you are uh, good and you have taught us to address you as Father knowing that you are good and gracious. And so, Lord, by your Spirit, speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, verse 2 of chapter 11. Uh, Verse 1 probably should be with chapter 10, so we'll pick up at verse 2. Here's the Apostle Paul writing to the believers in Jesus in Corinth. He says, I praise you for remembering me in everything and holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man or every husband, it's the same word, is Christ. And the head of the woman or wife, same word, is man or her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Every man or husband who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Every woman or wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. A woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created because of woman, but woman because of man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things, or does not nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Okay. That's easy enough. So let's let's start with what's clear. It's clear that the Apostle Paul is dealing with yet another problem in the Corinthian church caused by them thinking they know better than pretty much everybody else. And apparently, some of the women were causing problems when the church gathered for worship. That's the context, public gatherings, specifically they were publicly praying and prophesying without some sort of attire for their heads that was considered customary, normal, proper for women. And Paul's telling them that refusing that is not okay. Now our challenge is to understand why it was a problem and how that relates to us. So a couple of questions we need to answer first what was this customary attire that these women were refusing? There's actually a couple of options here, two possibilities. Either it was some kind of a shawl-like covering, or it was a hairstyle in which the hair was gathered up as opposed to hanging down loosely. And we really aren't certain which when it was, but it, either way, you end up at the same place, which is this. There was a head adornment that was considered normal and proper for women in a public gathering, and at least some of the Corinthian women were intentionally refusing to go along with that. So the second question, then, is why? Why were they refusing that? Well, most likely it was because they wanted to eliminate any distinctions between women and men. Now, we talked about this before when we were in chapter 7, and Paul talks there a lot about marriage, and uh, apparently some of the married women were refusing to have sexual relations with their husbands, and he addresses that. Why were they doing that? Well, apparently, they thought they had arrived at this higher spiritual plane and were now living in the future age that Jesus had told us is coming. So Jesus said that in the age to come, in the resurrection, in the new heavens and the new earth, when his followers, their bodies are resurrected and glorified and transformed to be like his glorious body. It tells us that in Philippians and elsewhere. That in this new heavens and new earth, men and women will no longer marry or be given in marriage. And apparently the Corinthians took that to mean that there will no longer be any differences whatsoever between women and men. And so they figured that since they were so spiritually advanced, they'd just go ahead and live that way right now, that that we should do that. So they wanted to do away with those differences between men and women. So no more marriage, no more sexual relations, no more gender distinctions of any kind. And to make their point, some of the women were intentionally refusing a cultural symbol of womanhood in order to be regarded as no different from men. Now in the past when I've taught on this passage, I have focused on the issue of headship. You see that word head occurs several times in the first part of the passage. Um, sometimes it's talking about a literal head, the thing on your shoulders, and other times it's, it's talking it's to it's metaphor for something. And so we've, you know, I've worked through this issue of headship and how the Bible teaches that men and women are equal in essence, their substance being human, and equal in worth, Just as Christ, the Son, and God, the Father, are equal in essence and worth. One is not better than the other, one's not more important, more valuable than the other. But the Bible also teaches that men and women have different and complementary roles in marriage, in the home, and in the church. Just as God the Father and Jesus have different and complementary roles in their relationship and in their outworking of God's plan. Jesus does things the Father does not do, and the Father does things that Jesus does not do, and the same is true of the Spirit. So, talking about this headship thing, uh, that usually gives me plenty to talk about, since it's very countercultural, shall we say. But it occurred to me as I was working on this for this time, uh, there's something here that's become far more countercultural, and far more uh, controversial, urgent, it's a bigger issue. Uh, even more so than male-female relationships, the even more significant issue these days is male-female identity or gender identity. Our culture is really wrestling with this, wrestling with questions like, what exactly is gender? How many genders are there? Who decides what gender you are? And what do you do if you don't like the gender that you are, and so on. And it's a discussion that's everywhere. I am sure you've noticed. It is literally everywhere. And um, what was believed even yesterday is being challenged today. And if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a believer in him, how are you supposed to respond to all this? Well, there are some truths here that can help us, can help us understand God's intentions when it comes to gender and help us relate to others on this issue and i want to be really clear what my goal is today my goal is to help us understand and to embrace god's design because it is good he is good he defines what is good And he wants us to experience what is good. And you know, if you don't know that about God, if you don't know that about God, then whenever you run into a portion of his word that's hard to understand or goes against what is culturally popular, then you're gonna have a very hard time accepting it as a word from God that's good for you and good for others jesus said in john 8 31 and we just sang about it just a few minutes ago um, he said if you hold to my teaching if you abide in my word then you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free jesus did not come simply to correct our mistaken thinking He came to set us free, to set us free from all that would damage us, harm us, destroy us, keep us from eternal life. He died for us. He rose from the dead. He taught us to give us life and joy. And the way we experience that is by trusting him. So, what I'm planning to do is highlight from this passage a biblical vision, a Christian vision of gender. Now, some of these things may well seem obvious to some of you, maybe many of you, most of you, but I can assure you that you know people, you love people, you work with people, you go to school with people, you have people in maybe your extended family, maybe even your immediate family, for whom these things do not seem obvious. They actually seem very questionable and even hurtful. My goal is not to try to prove this vision of gender, but to show you that it is what the Bible teaches and it's what Jesus affirmed, because I believe, we believe as a church that what Scripture teaches and what Jesus affirms, that expresses God's good intentions for us. And we want to embrace that. So, here we go. First piece of this gender is not assigned or chosen, it is created. Gender is not assigned or chosen, it is created. Maybe you noticed, I want you to notice how Paul calls, how he calls his readers to return to the customary distinction in hairstyle or head covering for women. He does it by appealing to creation. He he assumes that we are familiar with the creation accounts in Scripture. So in Genesis 2, we learn that God created woman out of man's side, flesh of his flesh, bone of his bone, and gave her to him because he needed help in fulfilling his purpose, filling humanity's purpose. It was not good for him to be alone, God said. as the first time anything wasn't good in this world. And that means that gender is his idea. So that we can fulfill his good purposes for us. It is built into the very fabric of what it means to be human. God intentionally created us with gender to accomplish his good purposes and for our good. So Genesis 127. So, God created man, humanity, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So, the confusion we experience about gender ultimately comes from a confusion about our origin. It is not a coincidence at all, I'm convinced. It's not a coincidence that the more people believe that they are merely the unplanned result of undirected natural processes, the more confused they become about their identity and their value. Who am I? What am I? What is my worth? What is my value? Do I even have any? Well, according to the predominant story of our culture, you are nothing more than a collection of molecules in motion that have no ultimate value. But not according to Jesus. One day Jesus was asked a question about Marriage, And he answered it by appealing to our creation. So he says in Mark 10, 6, But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. We should just sort of let that sink in. See, I didn't say that. Those aren't the words of some hateful bigot. Jesus said that. According to Jesus, you, you are creation of God. You are not here by accident. You are not here as a random, natural, unplanned process. He made you. And you are male or female by his design. And that's obviously very different from views being promoted today, that gender is either assigned or it's chosen, assigned, you know, sort of arbitrarily. It's the idea that you're male or female because that's what your mother and father labeled you as or your delivering physician labeled you or a midwife or something. And some people really resent that. They really struggle with that because it violates their sense of freedom, their understanding of what it means to be free. They say gender's chosen. We get to decide for ourselves what gender we are. Just pointing out that, that those ideas don't line up with what Jesus says. According to him, gender is created by an all wise, all loving God. Second piece God made male and female distinct or different. In everything Paul says here, There is this underlying assumption that men and women are different. And they're different by design. So, equal, equal in dignity, equal in value, equal in worth. We saw that in Genesis 127, that they both share the image of God. And the very next verse, this is Genesis 1.28, says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. That was the noble blessing, the noble charge that God gave that first man and first woman, humanity, male and female, Equally to rule this world, to govern it as his image, in his stead. Equal, but equal does not mean identical. doesn't mean same. It doesn't mean interchangeable. When God says, be fruitful and increase in number, be fruitful and multiply, well, we know how that happens. It takes both male and female. And each has their distinct contribution to the process, so to speak. So God intended that male and female be different. And as you read through scripture, you discover that there, you learn that there are actually several differences that go beyond mere reproduction. Like this headship thing. And how that works out in family, how that works out in church. And the challenge that we struggle with so much is keeping all of this in balance. How do you keep it in balance? Equal but different, equal but different. All those stereotypes, all those you know, jokes about men, jokes about women, all that. You know, it's just keeping this stuff in balance. I want you to see how Paul does that. Right after he says in verse 8 that man did not come from woman, but woman from man, he says in verse 11, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman's not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman, for as woman came from man, man is born of woman. Well, why does he do this? Why does he say that? Because he wants to make sure that we don't misunderstand the creation account as somehow implying that women are less valuable than men. The order of creation does not indicate, you know, God likes guys more. That's his point. Both are equally necessary by God's design, but they're different. Equal but different. Number three, cultures have their ways of distinguishing gender. Cultures have their ways of distinguishing gender. So (laughs) men and women look different because they are different. And each culture typically reinforces that difference in appearance by having different clothing and different hairstyles for men and women. Now, I suppose if we didn't wear any clothes, um, our differences would be immediately obvious. Thank the Lord, we do. Okay, so cultures use clothing and hairstyles to visibly distinguish men and women. And there is within most people a natural desire to adopt the visible cultural symbols of our gender. That's what Paul's talking about in verse 14. When he says, Does not the very nature of things, or does not nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? What's he talking about? Well, he means this. This is quoting John Piper. He says, There is in man, that is in a male, a native, a natural sense of repugnance against taking on cultural symbols of femininity. The problem is not hair length or head covering in and of itself, the problem is intentionally taking on a cultural symbol of gender in order to be seen, regarded, treated as something other than God made you to be. Now, sometimes people take these verses and try to use them to make these gender symbols, cultural symbols, absolute for all cultures for all time. So, for example, long hair of whatever particular length That's always wrong for men. God doesn't like it. I remember being in a a gathering one time where a woman made that point. She said, God doesn't want men to have long hair. He doesn't like it. Well, the problem is that doesn't work. Because under the law of Moses, a man could take a special vow of devotion to the Lord called the Nazarite vow. Do you know what that vow included? not cutting his hair. So number 6-5. And Paul would have been very familiar with this, by the way. In fact, Paul took this same vow. We read about it in the book of Acts. All the days of his vow of separation, so however long this vow was, and and by the way, we read of guys in the Bible who were lifelong Nazarites. Samuel was one. He was a Nazarite from birth. He never cut his hair. You know, let your imagination think that one through. All the days of his uh, vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord. He shall be holy, that means distinct, set apart. He shall let the locks of his hair, uh, the locks of hair of his head grow what? Long. Holy means distinct, separate, special. A Nazarite looked distinct because he never shaved or cut his hair, never trimmed it and it's this is similar it's parallel to what people many people do today during the Lent season leading up to Easter. They take a special you know they're going to specially devote themselves focus on the Lord leading up to Easter, and so they'll give up something that they would normally participate in or enjoy it's a way of focus but you you would never mistake a Nazarite man for a woman and not just because of the beard women wore their long hair differently and that's the point that's the point Today, the reason most women don't wear head coverings has nothing to do with trying to look like men or do away with gender distinctions and and act and be treated just like men. It's not a symbol of womanhood in our culture the way it was in Corinth. So what is considered men's clothing, women's clothing, Men's hairstyles, women's hairstyles, that can vary quite a bit from culture to culture. And it can be kind of, you know, hard to keep up sometimes. But here's the point. Every culture has its way of distinguishing men from women. And that brings us then to this application. Honor the culture when it honors God's intentions. Honor the culture when the culture honors God's intentions. Here's the thing these women in Corinth were not rejecting the customary head adornment because it was oppressive, because it was unjust, because it was weird. They were rejecting it because they wanted to do with gender distinctions altogether. That is a rejection of God's design because gender distinctions are his idea. Believing in Jesus, becoming a believer in Christ, that doesn't eliminate gender distinctions. No, the good news is that he, by his grace, by his word, by his spirit, enables us to redeem gender distinctions from all their distortions. And there are many. He wants us to respect cultural symbols of masculinity and femininity when they honor God's good intentions for men and women. If they don't, then we should challenge them. So I'll give you some examples. Our culture has men's clothing and women's clothing. So you go to Kohl's, Target, wherever you shop. You got men's clothing over here, women's clothing over here. Well, that's a good thing. Why? Because it honors the fact that God made men and women to look different. So if you're a man, wear men's clothing as a way of affirming God's good design for you as a man. If you're a woman, wear women's clothing as a way of affirming God's good design for you as a woman. Now, this doesn't mean that women can't ever wear pants because our culture has pants for women that a guy would never wear. I don't even understand women's pants. (laughs) What in the world is a size eight? I don't get that. I, you know, I'm 34-34, okay? 34 30, whatever. I get that. Size 8? <laughs> or women's blouses. I, I didn't know this until my wife mistakenly put a blouse in with my shirts. that was a white blouse, looked like a white shirt. I'm not paying attention. I go to put it on. I go to button it. I can't button it. <laughs> the button's on the other side. How many of you guys knew that? So you got men's clothes, women's clothes. Okay, that's good. Here's what doesn't honor God's design, and that is to intentionally wear the other gender's clothes, not because you want to be comfortable, not because it's more practical, maybe in working in the yard or something, but because you want to do away with gender, you want to be seen, you want to be regarded, you want to be treated as the other gender. That doesn't honor God's design. Now, not all cultural symbols of gender are legit. They're not. They need to be evaluated. How do you evaluate them? By comparing them to biblical truth and Christ's loving intentions. Culture can go and does go too far. We come up with these rigid stereotypes that have nothing to do with honoring God's design. My high school was like that. My high school culture had this rigid, rigid definition of masculinity. Had nothing to do with God's good design, Christ's loving purpose. Basically, if you did not compete in certain sports, you were not manly. And if, God forbid, you were to participate in the arts, music, drama, you were ridiculed. Well, that's not a true view of manhood. That's not a true view of masculinity. That's got nothing to do. Do you realize the Bible is full of poetry and songs, most of which were written by men and sung by men? Poetry! (laughs) Likewise, for the women... It is contrary to Christ's loving purposes for our culture to do what it does and encourage girls and women to dress publicly in ways that encourage men to treat them as sexual toys, as objects of sexual gratification, instead of regard them as persons. That's contrary. Yes, women want to be attractive. They want to look attractive. You've got to be careful in what sense you're seeking to attract attention. So it can be very challenging, obviously, to decide which cultural symbols of gender are good and which ones aren't, but don't lose sight of the goal. What's the goal? To honor and celebrate God's design as good. That's the goal. He created us male and female, equal but different for our good and for his glory. So to reject his design, to reject his design is not only foolish, it's actually unloving because it leads people away from the life Jesus wants them to know. The life he wants them to experience. It shows that we lack confidence in God's goodness and in God's wisdom, and that never, that never turns out well. Well, what do we do when people disagree with us on this vision of gender? What if someone chooses to go DIY, do it yourself on this? What do we do? We love them. We love them. We pray for them. And we seek opportunities to graciously, graciously point them to Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. Because, see, the ultimate issue, the bottom line issue here on this topic, as well as any other, is who knows? Who really knows what is best? Do we know what's best? Or does the one who made us, the one who promises us eternal joy if we will trust him, that becomes the issue. People are really struggling. People are really struggling. And, And those who want to embrace and follow Christ's vision on this Man, they need support. They need encouragement. They need, they, we need to be honest with our struggles on this and other issues. And those who don't accept this vision, reject it. They, they need our prayers. They need our love. They don't need our ridicule. They don't need our anger. They don't need our frustration that oh, our society is just changing. It's crazy. It doesn't help. It doesn't help. We're here to be salt and light. We're here to show people Jesus. So let's pray that he'll help us do that. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your good design, for your love for us. Thank you for Surrounding us with people who, who love you. We struggle, Lord, sometimes to embrace your good design for us, your good plans for us. And Lord, help us. Help us really love and support and encourage those who are struggling. Lord, it's not, it's not bad that we're struggling. It's bad when we, we refuse to trust you. Help us not do that. And help us be salt and light, graciously revealing the beauty of who you are, the beauty of your intentions. Help us with this, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.